Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. We're going to be looking at Genesis 22 this evening. So if you're watching this on replay, you can open up Bible.com or Bible Gateway or get your paper Bible or app on your phone. Turn to Genesis 22. Sketches from Scripture is um, it's just little short stories and they're inspired by a little, you know, I think the verse of the day. So it's like usually one verse and the story may not have anything to do with the verse. By the time I get done with it, it's just, I kind of use it as a writing prompt as a place to start idea wise. And, um, something that I try to do as a regular exercise. And then I share the ones that I think are worth sharing with other people and it's still developing, but I've got the blog on there for you to look at. Uh, there is a paid side to the blog, but you can subscribe for free. So if you go to subscribe and uh, you're looking and you see the different payment options or whatever, just, just click on the free one and you can get the stories every Saturday. And uh, while we're all kind of at home, I'm taking the stuff that normally would be on the paid side of things and I'm making some of those free. So you'll see the posts from Tuesday and Thursday with some YouTube clips and some different music and things. Um those are the kinds of things that you would get if you were uh, a paid uh, subscriber. So I'm going to drop the link here now to what I just posted a few hours ago. This is actually uh, not really one of the sketches from scripture, but this is the first pages of the book that I'm currently working on. And uh, so you can read it. You can give some feedback if you like, um, maybe to whet your appetite for the book that is coming. Maybe you have some questions about it. And uh, hopefully I can get that that book done and out sooner than later. So you can check that out. So we're looking at Genesis chapter 22 tonight. So last night we did a big swath of text, 15 to 21, and we really barreled through the text. And um, that's okay, because again, remember what the purpose of this study is, which is to talk about the narrative storytelling that's going on in the book of Genesis. And sometimes it works best to look at really big sections of Genesis so that you can see the parallels and the development of the, the character and the events and that sort of thing. So being able to sort of back out and look at that giant section, Genesis 15 through 21, I think is helpful in uh, helping us understand some of the story themes that are going on. Now you can take it story by story if you like, and there are things to learn from it and uh, principles there about God, about people that you can then turn and put into practice in your life. Uh, how you love God and how you treat other people. But um, 
Tonight, we're just going to look at one chapter. That's what we're going to do. And so there's a lot packed into this chapter. It's one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. Definitely one of the most important chapters in Genesis. And so we're going to talk about just it uh, tonight. And I will read this chapter, most of it. There's some uh, sort of family lineage stuff at, at the end, and we'll not worry about that tonight. So uh, for those of you who are um, watching live and later, uh, if you're a person of faith, then you'll probably be tracking right along with some of the things that we're talking about. And I hope that this opens your eyes to the depth of the scripture that you already love and trust. If you're a skeptic person and you're just sort of checking this out to see about the storytelling or maybe what I have to say about things, uh, which I'm I'm not sharing anything that I really came up with necessarily. I'm, I'm sharing things that I've learned from other people. So if you're a skeptic, I, I pray that this will pique your curiosity to study scripture for yourself, to see why has this book captured the whole world and turned it upside down, uh, you know, year after year, century after century. And if, like so many of us, if you're in this time where you're anxious or lonely or stir crazy, uh, I pray that sitting down and going through this story will give you some peace and that you'll be able to find some hope as we study uh, this continuing idea of light in the darkness. And an email that I received earlier this week included this quote from Tertullian, who was an early church father, that says, hope is patience with the lamp lit. And I can't think of a more fitting external quote for the study that we've been doing, because we see, especially the last couple of weeks, uh, the last couple of uh, lessons, because we see Abraham, who is waiting patiently for this promise that was made way back in Genesis chapter 12, when we first met Abram, he's waiting for God to fulfill this promise that he would be the father of many, that he would uh, have a great name and, and his family would be a great nation and would be a blessing to the rest of the world. And 25 years pass and several chapters pass. And finally, he has a son, Isaac, and the son is born in laughter after all this waiting. And in the study of finding the light amidst the darkness out there in the world, uh, I love this Tertullian quote, hope is patience with the lamp lit. So a very quick review, and then we'll get into the text. Genesis 1 through 11 starts with the creation of the cosmos and drills down to one man, Abram. And this is the idea that the Lord who created all things can come down and speak to us individually and can have a relationship with us individually. It's a very beautiful concept laid out right in the first chapters of scripture. It is God's word that creates light and it is God's word that separates the light from the darkness. So we've talked about the concept of holiness. The word holy does not appear in the text, but the concept is right there in the first sentence and on every page thereafter, this idea of creating order from chaos, separating the light from the darkness, and then making abundance in this space that's been created, letting the light become abundant in the ordered place that God has made. We see that in the song of Genesis chapter one about the creation of the entire universe, and then we see it play out in less tangible ways in every story sense that um, sinners and those who choose the way of the world are scattered and separated from those who are trusting in the light, trusting in the Lord and his word. And so the concept of holiness is there, even if we don't see the word yet. Another motif throughout Genesis is this idea of the family of God. So this isn't just, well, this happened over here and this happened over there, and here was this big event and these two peoples went to war or whatever. Instead, we start right out of the gate with the human, Adam. 
And we go down through uh, the sons of Adam, the sons of Seth, Noah, the sons of Shem. And we get down now to Abram and um, and his son, Isaac. And so we're, we're constantly looking at the family of God, a lot of fam- familial language, father, son, uh, mother, and uh, son. So uh, Genesis 12 really begins the story of Abram, where God makes this promise. And so far, we've seen God repeat this promise a number of times. I believe we're up to eight. I think we'll see nine and 10 tonight, if my counting is correct. It may be, it may be off. You can go back and count yourself. And Genesis 13 and 14, we look at Lot, Abraham's nephew, and we see the whole story, how he's kind of in contrast to Abraham, uh, in contrast to Abram. Abram wants to trust in the Lord, even though he's not very good at it. But Lot is trusting in himself. He's trusting in people. He's trusting in the cities, which are built in fear. Abram remains uh, a tent dweller in the wilderness, trusting in the word of the Lord. And so this theme over and over again throughout Genesis from the first sentence until uh, even here in chapter 22 is remove yourself from the wicked world and be a blessing to me and to all people. So apart from the world for the sake of the world, uh, we're introduced to Melchizedek, the priest king, and we learn that Jesus is the real Melchizedek. Uh, we learn that from the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew author. And then in 15 through uh, 21, we saw uh, sort of the conclusion of the story of Lot, the development of Abraham, the, the repeating of the promise, even though Abram is constantly taking matters into his own hands. Finally, Abram's name is changed to Abraham. Sarai's name is changed to Sarah. And Isaac is born in laughter. Immediately after Isaac is born in laughter comes Genesis chapter 22. And so I will read it. I will have some uh, thoughts about it. And then um, we will uh, we'll go from there. So I'm looking at Genesis chapter 22. Like I said, I'll read not the whole thing, but most of most of the most of the chapter. I'm using Robert Alter's translation from uh, his translation and commentary called the Five Books of Moses, which again you can get as an ebook or a paperback. And it's uh, really remarkably done and really concentrates on preserving the narrative style so that you can see the story leap off the page. Not just the content. Abraham was a real person. Isaac was a real person. This event that we're about to read about really happened. But I don't want to talk about that so much. Let's assume it's real and it really happened. What we're talking about is what is the storytelling style tell us that we need to know for sure because of these events that really happened. They, the two of them, the two things go hand in hand, both the facts and the style. So uh, reading from Robert Alter's translation, Genesis chapter 22 and beginning in verse one. And it happened after these things that God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, And he said, here I am. And he said, take prey, your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall say to you. And Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took his two lads with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the offering and rose and went to the place that God had said to him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his lads, Sit you here with the donkey, and let me and the lad walk ahead, and let us worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood for the offering, and put it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the cleaver, and the two of them went together. 
And Isaac said to Abraham, his father, Father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Here is the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the offering? And Abraham said, God will see to the sheep for the offering, my son. And the two of them went together. And they came to the place that God had said to him. And Abraham built there an altar and laid out the wood and bound Isaac, his son, and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the cleaver to slaughter his son. And the Lord's messenger called out to him from the heavens and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not reach out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God and you have not held back your son, your only one from me. And Abraham raised his eyes and saw and look, a ram was caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Yerah, as he said to this day, On the mount of the Lord there is sight. And the Lord's messenger called out to Abraham once again from the heavens, and he said, By my own self I swear, declares the Lord, that because you have done this thing, and have not held back your son, your only one, I will greatly bless you, and will greatly multiply your seed, as the stars in the heavens, and as the sand on the shore of the sea. And your seed shall take hold of its enemy's gate. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed because you have listened to my voice. And Abraham returned to his lads and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelled in Beersheba. And we'll stop there. So let's note a few things uh, that are going on here. First of all, the story begins so abruptly, especially compared to other ancient texts. So it just says, and it happened uh, after these things, God tested Abraham, just tells you what's about to happen. And he said to him, this, this is God speaking right, right out of the gate. God begins speaking. And, and you know, who is this God? Well, we know because we've read the, the chapters leading up to this. Remember, the chapters and verses were added in, you know, medieval times that, that um, originally this was just one long continuous story and it was only broken up by the style. You could tell as you were reading it, sort of when a story ended and another one began. And so who is this God? Where, where is he? Uh, does he come down? Does he speak? You know, if this story were isolated as a spiritual story, we don't know any of those things. Uh, because it's part of Genesis, now we know those things. But he's not conferring with any other beings. He's not um, making a declaration and then coming down. He's not saying anything to the angels. He's, you know, uh, like other ancient texts, there's not other gods around that he's conferring with or discussing with, or it's not like the book of Job where he's being challenged by some other being. He's not coming from some other feast as the gods of other epic texts, ancient texts. He's just singularly there speaking. Again, it's just the word of God. That's all there is. And who is this Abraham? I mean, he's been Abram up until, you know, the chapter or so before this. Now he's Abraham. In this story, who is Abraham? Well, it's not said. I mean, Isaac is speaking and and is uh, strong enough to carry the wood. So Isaac has, has grown up some. So time has passed since the last chapter. And, and what has happened? We don't know. Um, it's not said where he is or what he's doing when the Lord speaks to him. Even in the stories we have, we've learned about major events in, in Abraham's life, each separated by more than a decade at times. What's happening in between these stories? You know, um, we don't know. It doesn't say. 
the story begins just very abruptly with speech. So God calls Abraham, Abraham again, meaning father of multitudes, which has a little irony to it. Why? Because he's got one son, Isaac. Well, you know, actually, he's got that other son, right? He's got that other son, uh, Ishmael, through Hagar, right? So is this his only son, right? But God calls Abraham. Abraham responds, here I am. You've heard that phrase a couple of times in this chapter. That's not um, a declaration of place, okay? So that's not like um, God is looking around for Abraham and he's like, oh, here I am. Okay, that's that's not what that means. This is very similar to um, when Samuel is awoken in the middle of the night as a young boy in the book of 1 Samuel as he's sleeping uh, in, near the tabernacle and he hears the voice of God, Samuel, and he says, here I am. He's not saying, oh, I'm right here. What he's saying is, behold me. That's sort of literally what it means. Look, me. Right. And it means uh, here I am awaiting your command is what that means. But literally, it means behold me, look at me. And you'll see this theme of looking and seeing all throughout the story. And God speaks to him and he says, please take or in this version, take pray your son. And so it's interesting that, you know, this isn't it. When God speaks and asks you to do something, it's a command. But this isn't phrased like a command. It's almost phrased as a as a request. If you would, Abraham, do this. Where after all, this is a test. And we've seen before, as Abraham waits on these promises, that he often will sort of take the answer into his own hands. Well, if I'm going to be a great nation, maybe that's from Lot, my nephew, or maybe that's from Eliezer of Damascus, my servant that lives in my house, or maybe it's from Ishmael that I will have through Hagar, our uh, maidservant. And God, all these times, has said, no, no, it's your son from your wife, and you'll name him Isaac. And so now Isaac is here and Isaac is alive. And so God speaks to him. He says, take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac. Isn't it very interesting? Um, there is this, just like Genesis 1 through 11, there is this zooming down to a single person, just like Genesis 1 through 11, right? Take your, your son. Well, which one? Your only one. Well, I kind of have two. The one you love. Well, I love both of them. Isaac. So there's no getting out of it. There's no making the own answer now. It's very clear who the Lord is speaking about. And the request is paradoxical. Because, because he's talking about this son, this only son, he's in, uh, basically referring to the promise that he made to Abraham, that your seed will be great through your only son. Hasn't the Lord promised Abraham to be a nation from his loins, from Isaac? And now he's asking for Isaac to be slaughtered before Isaac has any children of his own. He's still a boy. Would God raise Isaac from the dead, from the ashes? Why would Abraham have reason to believe this? That's nothing he's ever seen before. Would God relent and tell him, oh, it's only a test? And then where is the sincerity of Abraham's obedience? And so now after all this waiting, he's finally been given what he's hoped for from the very beginning. From his first calling back in chapter 12, God lays out a choice for Abraham. Will you obey and revere me wholeheartedly by giving up everything you have been promised? In other words... Are you doing all this for me or are you doing this for the promises? 
So what's being sacrificed here besides Isaac is Abraham's personal ambition. As we follow and trust the Lord, we have to ask ourselves, are we doing this because the Lord is worthy? Or are we doing this because we want to go to heaven? Because we want to be in the inn? Because we want the church family and their support? Why is it that we trust God? Is it because of all the things that we get? Or is it because he's worthy to be trusted? And so right away, the story begins in chapter 22, after the discussion is there. They arise early in the morning. Abraham delays not, and he speaks not to God. He merely obeys. So remember, ancient dialogue, you've got two people speaking to each other. And when one of them doesn't respond, that tells you something. And in this case, it tells you once again of Abraham's obedience. Remember in the beginning when God said, get up and go to, to the land that I will show you, leave you know, the place of your birth and go to the land that I will show you. And Abraham went, right? Abram went. He trusted God then. He trusted God that this promise would come, even though he faltered and, and took matters into his own hands a number of times. And once again, he trusts the Lord wholeheartedly. He speaks not to God. He merely obeys. And it seems that he speaks not to Sarah, who is absent in the story for reasons you can probably imagine. There is nearly no commentary on anyone or anything or any place in this story. Now, my background is in filmmaking. And when you're writing a screenplay, you can't write about what people are thinking or their emotions because you can't see that on the screen, right? So you can only write what you see and hear. And then the emotion kind of has to be inferred by the audience watching. So I can't write that Greg is angry. I can write Greg throws a chair, but I can't tell you about the emotions of a character. And this story is written very much like a screenplay. It's starkly related, only what can be seen and heard, allowing the emotion within it to swell within you. It's not coaxed or cajoled, but it's honest and real. And it's based on your experience of what it's like to feel these kind of relationships, to um, see what looks like betrayal uh, on the horizon, to know the love and the sacrifice, to know the trust of God. What you know of all those things suddenly is now injected into the story because the story is so stark and tells us only what we hear and explicitly what we see. There's no discussion of motives or emotion, or justification, or rationalization, Abraham simply obeys. It's an action. And for us to speculate what's in his mind and his heart is an attempt to circumvent his obedience, which we are afraid to imitate. So what we must see is that God, to test Abraham, gives him a task, and Abraham obeys. From there, uh, Alter in his commentary says, the narrator does not miss a chance in the story to refer to Isaac as his son and Abraham as his father, thus sharpening the edge of anguish that runs throughout the tale. And before they head off uh, there around verse three or four, it says he split wood in a narrative famous for its rigorous economy in reporting physical details. This act of Abraham Wielding an axe and cutting things apart is ominously singled out for attention. It's a little foreshadowing coming. Splitting of the wood. 
the wood that Isaac will carry. In verse 4, Abraham lifts up his eyes as if for three days they journeyed, meeting no one, not speaking to each other, stopping nowhere, seeing nothing but their own feet in the sand. Abraham carries the fire and the cleaver, the two things that can hurt his son. Isaac carries the wood. The exchange between Isaac and Abraham, the conversation that they have, is the first father-son dialogue in the Bible. This very difficult moment is the first father-son dialogue in Scripture. In this conversation, uh, Isaac mentions the inventory. Uh, of course, it begins um, very reminiscent of, of the opening of the whole story where he says to Abraham, father, and Abraham says, here I am, my son. And Isaac mentions the inventory. He says, uh, here's the fire and the wood, but where's the sheep? Did you notice what he left out? Yeah, he leaves out the cleaver, the knife. Even Isaac is starting to have a sense of what is about to happen. And in verse 8, Abraham answers him by saying, God will see to it. This see, seeing is the crux of the story, as we will come to learn. It's a motif that runs all throughout the story. And in this moment, Abraham has to be torn. Uh, Eric Auerbach in uh, his book, Mimesis, has this phrase about this moment. His soul is torn between desperate rebellion and hopeful expectation. In those difficult moments of obedience, we so desperately want to rebel and take matters into our own hands and think that we know better and think that we can find a better way. But then we also have this hopeful expectation that, that God has promised us something and that the way God is going to do things is going to be better if only we can hold out and continue to obey. And, and, and we're torn between these two very powerful feelings. We can imagine Abraham in this place, even as they ascend Mount Moriah. Verses 1 through 8 cover three days, uh, three days plus, in a very short span. Verses 9 and 10 suddenly go into slow motion, detailing, drawing out every act. After the ram appears, Abraham says, um, this is Jehovah Yura, and this is often translated, God will provide in the translation that you're reading along in, perhaps that's how it's translated, God provides. But literally what it means is God will see for himself or the sight of the Lord. That's how it's translated here uh, in Alter's text. And so if you take it in the literal way that God will see for himself or the sight of the Lord, is it the Lord that is seeing or is it the Lord that is being seen? Is it the sight of the Lord? I've seen the Lord. Or is it the sight of the Lord? The Lord sees me. And is it the person approaching Moriah, the one seeing, or the person approaching Moriah being seen? It's all very ambiguous. Genesis loves to create this ambiguity and then live there. It forces us as the reader, as the hearer, to ask all these questions and to explore all the possibilities. And that just draws us closer in relationship the more we think about the Lord. By the way, this whole story is a chiasm, and we talked a couple lessons now about what a chiasm is, and basically it is a story that 
unfolds one way and then something changes everything. And then it goes in reverse order with everything now being different because of that change. And so what we see here in the very beginning is Abraham, Abraham, here I am. And we see Abraham's sequential deeds. In the middle is the conversation with Isaac, which begins, here I am, and ends with Abraham saying, God will see to it. God will see the sight of God. Then we see Abraham's sequential deeds with that trust in the Lord. And it ends with the Lord calling from the heavens, Abraham, Abraham, and him saying, here I am. The whole story is a chiasm. And in it, Abraham's faith. God says, now I know that you will not even hold this back from me. Now I got to ask, did the Lord not know before this? That's kind of what that seems to implicate, right? Uh, Did the Lord not know? That's probably not likely. In the same way, back in the story of Noah, where the Lord says to himself, oh, now I see uh, humans are evil from their youth. Well, that's not God discovering that. That's God saying it out loud in the story so that we, the reader, we, the hearer of the story, will understand. It's not a surprise to God, but it might be a surprise to us. It's something now we have learned because we're reading the story. And I think there's a similar thing happening here, but instead of it being for the reader, I think really this is primarily for Abraham. I think this is God letting Abraham know, now you know you will hold nothing back from me. Yes, you've been lying, and yes, you've been trying to take matters into your own hands, but now you can know that you trust me wholeheartedly. Now you know it, Abraham. And guess who else knows it? Isaac knows it. Isaac knows that his father trusts the Lord wholeheartedly and will hold nothing back from him, including his own son. The whole story is a chiasm, but the turning point is that conversation. That first father-son conversation in the Bible is the turning point of this whole chiastic structure. And what is that conversation? The Lord will see to it. Abraham doesn't say, trust me, my son. He tells Isaac, let's trust the Lord. The whole story is only what you can see. And yet the whole story predicates on the one thing in the story that cannot be seen, and that is the word of the Lord. So at the center of this story of faith is the transmission of faith from father to son, from one generation to the next. The first father-son conversation in scripture is to transmit the faith of the father to the son, to listen, to believe, and obey the word of God. We have a word for this in church, and that is discipleship. When you teach someone else how to obey, when you teach someone else to trust and follow Jesus, to trust and follow scripture, to trust and follow the Lord. Fathers do it with sons. Mothers do it with daughters. Youth ministers do it with teens. Preachers do it with the flock. Shepherds do it with their sheep. Discipleship is the transmission of that faith by example, by action, by obedience, and by teaching. And we see that the first father-son conversation of scripture is discipleship. And after this conversation, the text says, and the two of them went together. 
<laughs> it's it's so bittersweet. But they have this conversation, and you can see in the words that Isaac is afraid as he looks at the knife but doesn't say anything about it, you know? And Abraham tells him, well, trust the Lord. And after that, it says, and the two of them went together. Isaac's binding, he doesn't protest. He's strong enough to carry the wood, but he doesn't seem to put up a fight. Seems like he's doing this with his father. Isaac adopts Abraham's faith as his own. And what Abraham has told him on the way proves true. The Lord sees to it by providing something visible. Just as Abraham lifted up his eyes to see Moriah, he lifts up his eyes another a second time and he sees the ram. He lifts up his eyes and sees, and look, a ram. So now the Lord sees, and Abraham sees, and Isaac sees. We, the reader, the hearers, we see the result of the Lord's test. The reverent, awe-filled, wondering, wholehearted fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, promise, love, and redemption. So remember what all has happened before this. The Lord has promised Abraham a name, a great nation, through his son Isaac. And now God asks, if it's me or the promises, which do you choose? And Abraham chooses the Lord, and the Lord gives him all of both, all of himself and all of the promise. It's just like in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says, seek first, not seek only, Seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and the other things that you need will be given to you. And so how is it this, this kingdom of God, this reign of God, we think of the kingdom of God, like, like a, maybe like a building or certainly like maybe the people, but in uh, new Testament, the word kingdom means the reign of God, the kingness of God. How is it that this kingdom of God, the reign of God, God ruling over everything, how is it that that comes into being? So remember the very beginning of last of uh, last night when we looked at chapter 15, the walking between the carcasses, the Lord says, may this happen to me if the covenant is broken. I mean, it should be Abraham walking through the carcasses with him, but it isn't. It's only the Lord by himself. And now in chapter 22, Abraham's son, his only son, the son he loves, the chosen son is spared. And yet the nation of Israel the history of Judah, every living man and woman break the covenant over and over and over again. And so, once again, years later, the word of the Lord becomes seen in the person of Jesus. And so it is that the Lord takes on the punishment for the broken covenant. It is the Lord who accepts slaughter, even though it is not his offense. And it is the Lord's son, his only son, the son he loves, the chosen son who is not spared, but is crucified. So that like Abraham, like Isaac, we may continue on living in the promises of wisdom and truth and love. And it is this faith, uh, this trust of the Lord that we must choose again early in the morning, every morning. We must lift up our eyes and go together. So we'll conclude this evening by reading Genesis chapter 22 again, now that we've had all this discussion and seen what there is to find there. And as you hear it the second time, maybe just close your eyes and listen to it being read. And you can see how the story is so deep and rich 
and full. Genesis chapter 22. And it happened after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take pray your son, your only one whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall say to you. And Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took his two lads with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the offering and rose and went to the place that God had said to him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his lads, sit you here with the donkey and let me and the lad walk ahead and let us worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood for the offering and put it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the cleaver and the two of them went together. And Isaac said to Abraham, his father, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Here is the fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the offering? And Abraham said, God will see to the sheep for the offering, my son. And the two of them went together. And they came to the place that God had said to him, And Abraham built there an altar and laid out the wood and bound Isaac, his son, and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the cleaver to slaughter his son. And the Lord's messenger called out to him from the heavens and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not reach out your hand against the lad. And do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, and you have not held back your son, your only one, from me. And Abraham raised his eyes and saw, and look, a ram was caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jerah. As is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, there is sight. And the Lord's messenger called out to Abraham once again from the heavens. And he said, by my own self, I swear, declares the Lord, that because you have done this thing and have not held back your son, your only one, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars in the heavens and as the sand on the shore of the sea. And your seed shall take hold of its enemy's gate. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed, because you have listened to my voice. And Abraham returned to his lads, and they rose and went together. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.